BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music and lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. You're listening to Comedy Central. Coming to you from New York City, the only city in America, it's The Daily Show. Tonight, the Royals are coming. Election officials under threat. And Wes Moore. This is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Tonight, the Democrats are going back to black. Boston is hosting another Tea Party, and Elon Musk is going to be living rent-free in all our heads. So, let's do this, people. Let's jump straight into today's headlines. All right, people. I'm going to be honest. With all the news that happened today, I don't think we have enough space in today's show. We just don't have the time. I I even tried to squeeze it all into a corset, but it just made the news look sexy, and now I've got a roll (laughs) on Bridgerton. So there's still not enough time. But fortunately, not enough time is just enough time for a segment we call Ain't Nobody Got Time For That. (laughs) All right, let's kick things off with the Democratic Party, easily one of the top two parties in the United States. As you know, Democrats lost control of the House in last month's midterm elections. And as they get ready to be in the minority, they're making some big changes at the top. Democrats in the House have made history with their new leadership. Congressman Hakeem Jeffries of Brooklyn has become the first black leader of either party in Congress. He will take over from Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who, as you know, is remaining in the House after stepping down from the top job. Jeffries is 52, 30 years younger than the outgoing House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. A leader with a style all his own and a penchant for weaving in the legacy of hip-hop. That is why we are here, Mr. Seculo. And if you don't know, now you know. I'm glad no one else in the room finished that lyric. As much as I enjoy it, I think it feels kind of weird to quote Biggie in such a serious and boring place like Congress. Like, I love, I love hip-hop. I love hip-hop. But I don't want to hear it everywhere, you know? Yeah, like, I don't want my doctor shoehorning that shit in. <laughs> so, Mr. Noah, 
What are your symptoms? Palms sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. <laughs> Please take this very seriously, I'm very ill. But that's right, after 250 years, America finally has a minority, minority leader, which is amazing. Although you will notice the Democrats only gave it to a black guy after they lost the house, yeah? It's kind of like someone crashing their car and then being like, hey, Akeem, I know you've always wanted a BMW, no need to say thank you. Also, the cops want to talk to you, bye! <laughs> but no, you still, you still have to give credit to the Democrats, right? Republicans haven't done this yet. I mean, they still think minority leader was the original title of Black Panther. And this isn't just a big deal because Jeffries is black. Remember that. This also marks a shift for the Democrats to a much younger generation of leaders. Although again... <laughs> we also don't really know, you know? No, because Hakeem Jeffries is black, so he could be like 90. We don't actually know <laughs> how old he is. Because you realize even at 52, for a party leader in America, he's actually a young man. I mean, think about it this way. Joe Biden was in Congress when Hakeem was literally in diapers. <laughs> and now that Hakeem is in Congress, Joe Biden is the one in diapers. <laughs> the circle of life. If we had more time, we could talk about how the House Democrats are just a sideshow for the next two years, because the main event is whether Kevin McCarthy will be able to wrangle his clown car of crazies to get anything done. But we don't have the time to talk about that, because while Hakeem Jeffries is plotting to take over the House, Elon Musk is plotting to take over our brains. Elon Musk said on Wednesday a wireless device developed by his brain chip company Neuralink is expected to begin human clinical trials in six months. The company is developing brain chip interfaces that it says could enable disabled patients to move and communicate again. We've been working hard to uh, be ready for our first human. It's essentially the, it's sort of like having an Apple Watch or a Fitbit, uh, re replacing a piece of skull with like a, you know, a smartwatch. <laughs> you have a Neuralink device. Like I could have a Neuralink device uh, implanted right now and you wouldn't, <laughs> You, you wouldn't even know, I mean. Yeah, yeah, Elon, if, if you told us you were part robot, all of us would be totally surprised. We, we would we'd be like, I never saw that coming. Now look, I, I will admit, the idea of this technology sounds amazing. But in reality, the idea of an Apple Watch or a Fitbit in my brain gives me a little pause. Because have you ever used an Apple Watch or a Fitbit? When it messes up on my wrist, I'm just like, ah. When it messes up in my brain, then what, all of a sudden I'm on Alex Jones praising Hitler for inventing the microphone? Is that what's gonna happen? I'm just like, ah! And secondly, if I'm gonna get a chip in my head, I don't know if I want Elon Musk to be in charge of it, you know? Like, a year ago, I would have been like, the Tesla guy? Maybe, maybe. But now I'm like, the Twitter guy? Mm. I'll pay him $8 to stay away. Now, if we had more time, we could talk about how Elon previously promised that his brain chip would be ready for human trials three years ago, or how he promised that Teslas would be self-driving by 2017, or how he'd build a high-speed underground train by 2020, or how he'd land on Mars by 2022. Basically, this dude is a guy in a strip club making it rain with IOUs. But we don't have time to talk about the techno king because some real royals have just rocked up to America's shores. It was a royal welcome for the Prince and Princess of Wales Wednesday on their first U.S. visit in eight years. Here to present the Earthshot Prize, which honors environmentalists. They kicked off the trip by helping turn Boston City Hall green. Catherine and I are absolutely delighted to be with you today. 
for our first engagement in the great city of Boston. The couple also took in an NBA game courtside, watching the Boston Celtics beat the Miami Heat. And then they hold this big star-studded event on Friday night where they're going to hand out five prizes worth more than a million dollars each to folks who are trying to tackle the climate crisis. Okay, first of all, Prince William is clearly a liar, right? No one has ever been delighted to be in Boston in December. <laughs> December? What are you excited about? Oh, I love chapped lips and getting thrown up on by Patriots fans. How peachy. <laughs> You've been there in December? And you might be saying, no, Trevor, they're having a good time. They even have courtside seats. You think these people are impressed by courtside seats? <laughs> the man's regular seat is a throne. <laughs> This man has never sat on a folding chair in his life. He's probably like, look at this thing. This chair has a mouth or something, Kate. <laughs> now, if we had the time, we could talk more about how great it is that Prince William and Kate are awarding money to people who are trying to solve climate change, or how shitty it is that they ignored my idea to plug in a bunch of air conditioners near the glaciers. Would have worked. But we just don't have the time for that. Because while these royals are having fun in America, the royals back home in the UK are not having a good time at all. Overshadowing the trip, controversy back at Buckingham Palace. The prince's godmother, Lady Susan Hussey, resigning amid accusations of racism. Ngozi Fulani, the founder of a women's nonprofit and a black woman born in the UK, says Tuesday at the palace, Hussey repeatedly asked where she was really from, implying she wasn't really British. Ngozi Fulani tweeting the exchange, which reads in part, what nationality are you? I am born here and I'm British. No, but where do you really come from? Where do your people come from? Hussey also asking, quote, what part of Africa are you from? After Ngozi said she was from London. Tonight, an eyewitness describing her shock at the exchange. If Ngozi was a white woman, that line of questioning wouldn't have taken place. People, how many times do we have to go through this? There is only one socially acceptable way to find out someone's heritage. You swab their DNA while they're asleep, okay? <laughs> it's the polite thing to do. This is like the first thing they teach you in Avoidable Racism 101. <laughs> it is just never say the word from. That's it. A lot of racism includes the word from. So just avoid it altogether. Where are you really from? Go back to where you came from. You see this clip from Tucker Carlson? <laughs> from, just stay away from it. And I also love how this woman was given a chance to control, out, delete her racism, right? But instead she just copy pasted and carried on. Where are you from? I'm born here and I'm British. No, 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 you don't understand. I'm being racist. How black are you? <laughs> Show me on this map of Africa I brought with me. Oh, let me put it in words you understand. Ganga, 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 ganga. Coke bottles falling from the sky. Now, if we had more time, we could talk about how having a racist godmother probably made Prince William even more popular in Boston. Or we could talk about how every scandal in the British monarchy is technically a spoiler for a future season of The Crown. But we just don't have time for that because I know where our show's money comes from, which is why we need to go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and 
Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. After two years of votes of fraud accusations and capital riots, it is no surprise that Americans have become less confident in their elections. But as Desi Laddick discovers in her new series, America's election infrastructure may be in even worse shape than you think. Hello again. I'm Desi Lydic. When I first started this series on our election infrastructure, I was just hoping to boost my brand enough to ditch this job and get on 60 Minutes. But over the last two installments, I've learned that our country is on the terrifying brink of election catastrophe, and that 60 Minutes is looking for more of a Hoda Kotb type. I mean, what the hell? I can go brunette if that's what it takes. I don't mind. <laughs> Anyway, here's our final look at Vote Demic 2022, our crumbling election infrastructure. Who cares? Just roll it. Well, America, we did it. Election accomplished. Despite a myriad of election problems, including a paper shortage and a lack of poll workers, we successfully pulled off an election, thanks to my reporting. So I'm back with Tammy at Democracy Fund. Tammy, break time's over. We gotta talk. To debrief and collect my well-earned thank yous. Thanks to your work and also my reporting, things are great, right? It, it did go mostly really well. Um, we had a couple of hiccups around the country, but in general, it did go fairly well. So we should take a moment and celebrate that. Tammy, I would love to bask with you. Let's bask. God, it feels good to bask. It's great to bask in the glory of competence and a well-executed election. Yeah. But we do still have challenges moving forward. God damn it, Tammy. Since the 2020 election, election officials have been under attack. We know from a recent survey that one in four of election officials in this country have experienced threats of harassment and abuse. So they're going to be leaving the field, unfortunately, in large numbers. How many people are getting harassed? Are we talking like a handful or like a shit ton? Unfortunately, I think it's closer to the shit ton. You heard Tammy's filthy mouth, a shit ton. 
And these threats from disgruntled election deniers range from local officials to secretaries of state. An Arizona elections official was moved to an undisclosed location because of threats to his life. In Milwaukee, elections executive director Claire Woodall Vogue has been bombarded by hate. In Georgia, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, his wife has gotten a barrage of threatening text messages. If you had to put your finger on it, what or who is responsible for this? Starting in the 2016 election, we had prominent candidates for the presidential office Trump. who were running saying that the elections were rigged, DJT. that there was rampant fraud, that in fact it was illegitimate. Donald J. Trump. Um, and that carried into 2020 as well. Trump, Trump, Trump. So that has created an environment that has provided both incentive as well as support for people to target election officials. Oh, okay, so Trump. But one of the things you might want to think about is, in fact, talking to somebody who was a local election official in 2020. Right. Yeah. And someone should go do that. Couldn't agree more. Someone should definitely go talk to an election official. Oh, I did this twice before. I got to do it again. God. After being bullied by Tammy to meet with the harassed election official, I'm at City Hall in Philadelphia to speak with Al Schmidt, former Philadelphia city commissioner and Trump's biggest target during the 2020 election. In Philadelphia, the city commissioners are responsible for running anything election related, from voter registration to mail-in ballots to election day operations to the final tabulation and certification of the election results. I mean, election administrators are really referees in all of this. Is it hard to be a referee in Philadelphia given Eagles fans? It, it certainly can be challenging, but we have the best fans uh, in the country. Can you give some examples of the type of harassment that you received? Well, the threats were pretty general in nature leading up to Election Day. But in the days that followed, especially after the former president targeted me by name on Twitter, that's when the threats became much more specific and much more graphic and were largely targeting my family. I'm sorry, that must have been terrifying. I fortunately had the Philadelphia Police Department looking after my family sort of night and day. So walking the dog, going to the grocery store, you know, when I took the kids sledding, the Philadelphia Police Department was right there alongside of us. Yeah, I, yeah, I totally get it. I'm in the same boat. The police follow my family and I around at all times for different reasons. Is there accountability for people who harass election workers? I think there's really two types of accountability that are needed. One is for people who are making threats of violence and clearly breaking the law, trying to coerce the people responsible for counting voters' votes. And also a different sort of accountability for elected officials who are spreading these lies that I would hope that voters hold them accountable. Harassers aside, how do you make amends with election deniers? You know, water under the bridge. Excuse me, water under the bridge. I've really gone out of my way to, to make sure that I you know, go to political meetings and answer questions that people have. And the most recent one I went to, uh, there was an older gentleman in the back who leaned back and said, forget about the facts for a moment. Biden lost. Like that makes it a real challenge to convince someone uh, when their belief system is completely independent of facts. And as an election official, you could take away that guy's vote, right? I want him to vote, and I want him to vote in every election. Do you, though? Do you really? I do. Do you really? I do. 
do you though? Most certainly. Every election. Damn, this guy was good. But with all the harassment civil servants like him are facing, I was beginning to worry that there was no way I could end this story on a positive note. I think it's a very encouraging sign that we had more people step up to volunteer to work on election day in the midterms in 2022 than ever before. Great, great, so it's fixed. I did it, I mean, we did it. So there you have it, America. Despite the problems we faced during 2022, thanks to Al and election workers across the country, there's still hope that 2024 won't be a complete shit show because I can't do another one of these. I can. Thank you so much for that, Desi Wright. Stay tuned, because when we come back, the first black governor of Maryland, Wes Moore, will be joining me right here on the show. So don't go away. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. show. My guest tonight is a combat veteran, a best-selling author, and former head of the anti-poverty organization Robin Hood. He will soon be sworn in as the first black governor of the state of Maryland. Please welcome governor-elect Wes Moore. Thank you, man. Governor-elect Westmore. Yes, sir. Are you Mr. used Hello. to that yet? I mean, it's only going to be for a short amount of time, and then it'll be Governor Westmore. Has it sunk in because you ran a campaign in a place where nobody expected <laughs> a Democrat to be able to win the seats of governor, and yet here you are, and you've done it. What does it feel like? Let's start with that, you yeah. know? Um, it feels great because you're right. I mean, when we first started this race, we started at 1%. 
you know, I say that I'm not voting was polling higher than where I was pulling at. <laughs> like, people were not feeling me at first. And, um, but I think what we did was we continued to show people we were going to meet people where they were. We were going to go to every part of the state, talk to every part of the state. Mm-hmm. And that also meant even places where there weren't a lot of Democrats. And people would literally say to me, they're like, you're coming to a lot of places, not a lot of Democrats. And I'm like, yeah, but there's a lot of Marylanders. Wow. And I plan on being their governor, too. And I think the people showed that that mattered. When you're able, when you're willing to put in the work and earn it, then the people respond. That is something that many people spoke about in your campaign. They, it was very apparent very early on that, that you ran a different race to what many establishment politicians run. Yeah. You, you didn't pander to a base. You know, you spoke to the people of Maryland. You didn't make the race national unnecessarily. Right. You spoke to the issues that were actually happening in your state. And I'd love to talk a little bit, a little bit about that. You know, I think I'll paraphrase you in that you, you said at one point, you don't understand why patriotism is somehow like owned now by Republicans <laughs> when everyone can be a patriot and everyone can love their country and still want to fix it. Talk me through how you came to this understanding and whether or not serving in the military and, and your life that led up to this contributed to thinking that way. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's wild because I would hear people talk about this term of patriotism and I became so bothered by it because I'm like, you haven't earned that, right? Where, where I, I think about this, this concept where, where my definition of patriotism was when I left my family and I put on the uniform of this country and I served with the 82nd Airborne Division overseas in Afghanistan and I was literally hearing people talk about patriots whose definition of patriotism was putting on a baseball cap and, and storming the Capitol and trying to take down democracy. And so I think about it in my own life. I come from a family Mm -hmm. of patriots because I come from a family of educators. I come from a family of people who have served as engineers and made this country with their hands. I come from a family of ministers, right? Mm -hmm. These are patriots. And so, and so I refuse to be lectured, nor should anybody allow anybody to try to bastardize that term of patriotism, because we come from a place where I understand what it means to love your country, even when your country doesn't love it back. Wow. But you still love it. Wow. So, for many people, they love the country. Many people love what they want the country to be. They have the ideas of what they want to do to fix it. You are actually now going to be in that position yes. at a really interesting time in America, at an interesting time, you know, for your state, because you have a $2 billion surplus. You, you're in a position where you're going to be able to spend money to make ideas a reality, which is not often the case. Yeah. Talk me through some of your plans. You know, I, for instance, Reading through your life, there are many people who've read your book and they know the story, but for those who don't, you know, your, your grandmother left Cuba, yeah. you know, and moved to Jamaica. Yes. Your mom left Jamaica and came to the United States. And so you, you have a family that is from many different places <laughs> in the world, you know? Sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, so, and so, you know, it, it's informed how you see healthcare because yes. of, you, you know, how young you were when your father died. Yeah. It's informed how you think about education, how you think about basic services. So let, let's start with, you know, one of the more basic ideas. Losing your father at such a young age yeah. because he couldn't get the health care he needed That's right. means you are now in a position to change that. What are you planning to change for the people in your states who may be in that same position? You know, I, I think about where everything that I am and everything we ran on has been influenced by my life, mm-hmm. right? Where my life has been consistently the consequences of broken policies and how it leaves people, how it leaves people behind. So when we talk about leave no one behind, which I learned in the military when I was 17 years old, leave no one behind is not just a mantra, that is a value statement. And so my earliest memories were watching my father die in front of me when I was three years old because he didn't get the healthcare that he needed. 
that one of my earliest memories was when I was 11 years old when I felt handcuffs on my wrists because I came up in a community that was over-policed and we knew it. That my mother was, four, I was 14 years old when my mother got her first job that gave her benefits. And by the way, Trevor, this is a woman who went on to earn a master's degree. Wow. So when we're having conversations, so when we're having conversations about, about inequitable pay between men and women or mm-hmm. inequitable pay between people of color and non, this is not an economic exercise to me. Mm-hmm. I don't need a white paper to explain this. Right? I've seen this. And so when we say that our, my entire platform, that what we're going to do is build pathways for work, wages, and wealth for all Marylanders, we mean that. And when we talk about work, it means having an education system that's teaching our students how not just to be employees, but how to be employers. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about... When you're talking about wages, it means making sure that people getting, are getting paid a fair wage because gone should be the days when we have people who are working jobs, and in some cases multiple jobs, and still living at or below a poverty line. And then get, and making sure we're focusing on wealth. And that's simply the idea that you should own more than you owe. And that means doing things like being able to address uh, unfair appraisal values in historically redlined neighborhoods because housing is one of the greatest ways to generate wealth and unfair appraisal values has been one of the greatest wealth thefts that we have seen in our society. And it means giving a chance for people to have a sense of ownership, increasing liquidity to our small businesses, our minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, really creating a platform and a pathway for people to pass something on to your children besides debt. So this is about work, wages, and wealth. It's, it's, a, it's a tall task. You know, you yeah. seem like you're up for the job. You, you, you're really motivated and you, you know what you want to do about it. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, being handcuffed when you are 11 years old. It mm. means that you have a view of the quote-unquote justice system yeah. that is particularly mm. unjust. You, you can see how it can go wrong so fast. However, in America, I've noticed a really interesting trend whereby it is almost impossible to criticize constructively a police force without being labeled as being anti-police. Yeah. You know, and then people say you're not, you're anti-law and order, you don't want anything to happen. When ironically, many police men and women will complain about their unions exactly. and the jobs they do, et cetera. Yeah. How do you find that balance then between saying to the people of your state in Maryland, my job is to keep you safe, my job is to address what is happening on the ground that leads to crime, but at the same time, my job is to repair a police force that has lost trust in many communities and lost trust, you know, in the public in general. You know, and I think about with our race and our campaign, our campaign was endorsed by both Progressive Maryland and the police union. How? And people say, how in the world did you pull that one off? Because basically it's the idea is this, is that I was offering the same thing to both sides, a seat at the table. That if we are going to actually address these issues, we have to make sure that we're doing it collectively and that we have to have a police force that is gonna move with appropriate intensity and absolute integrity and full accountability but we need to have the police force at the table to be able to make sure that happens. That we have to make sure that yes, we have to get violent offenders off of our streets and, off and out of our communities because no child, no child should have to come up in a neighborhood they are afraid of. And we have to get these illegal guns out of our neighborhoods. But, it's also, but it also means, but we also have to be very clear on this too. You're not gonna arrest your way out of this. And you're not gonna militarize your way out of this. And I do think about it from the context where at 11 years old, I felt handcuffs on my wrist, and if someone would have said to that 11-year-old kid, you know, one day you could be the governor, I would have never believed them. So we've got to make sure we're investing our kids so when we say things like that, that they actually believe us, because if a kid thinks that you don't care, they don't care what you think. And so we've got to make sure we're coming up with pathways, true pathways, for all of our children to understand that the future of our society, it isn't real unless they're a part of it. 
I would love to know from you as as somebody who's coming into politics, you know, you see so many politicians come in with, with really clear ideas of what they want to do and how they want to be. And very quickly, they get slowed down in the sludge that is politics, whether it be, you know, outside money, big, you know, organizations, DNC, RNC, whatever it may be, you see them slowing down and then they care more about being reelected than doing the job that they were elected to do. So, so I, I would start with this. In, in the most honest way, what would you say is the biggest challenge that you will have to face that people don't understand how challenging it is? Because oftentimes politicians will say, we have to fix this, we have to fix this, we have to fix this. Yeah. But I, I think it would be interesting for politicians to say, this part here is gonna be extremely difficult to fix because of X, Y, Z, or Z, as you'd say here. <laughs> like, like, what, like genuinely, when you say what, do you say, what would you say is the toughest issue facing Maryland right now? Um, I still think it comes back to economics because I still think people feel a very real sense of, uh, of an ease and economic uncertainty mm -hmm. about where things are. Um, but I think that what we've got to do is first of all, we have to let people know and, and make sure they can believe that we can actually get this done. Oh, really important, yeah. It's really important, right? And then also put the concrete plans in place about the things we're gonna have to do to be able to address that. And it means things like when we say we are going to invest to get people back to work, mm -hmm. it means we have to be able to do that in job reskilling and job retraining. Where, you know, right now in the state of Maryland, we have two available jobs for every single person filing for unemployment. Wow. And people say, well, how does that make sense? It's because we have a dynamic economy in the state of Maryland. We're just not preparing people to be able to participate right. in that economy, right? So being able to put together the concrete practical plans in order to do that. It means being able to start earlier. And again, I, as a leader, I am data-driven and heart-led, right? I, I wear my heart on my sleeve and I acknowledge that. But data matters and I don't move without data. And I know this is that 80% of brain development happens in a child by the time that child is five years old. So why we have children starting school at five makes absolutely no sense. We have to make sure we have pre-K for every single child in need in the state of Maryland. And so it really is saying we know what works. And again, I have, I've, I've been a public servant for my entire life. I just haven't been a politician. Right. Hmm. But I've had a chance. I've led soldiers in combat. I led a successful small business helping first generation students go to and through college. Mm -hmm. And then I had a chance to lead one of the largest poverty fighting organizations in this country. I know what works. We know what works. Now the question is, can we derive the political will and the political and the political focus and intentionality to actually bring these things to scale? And that's where I think we had a unique value proposition that allowed the people of Maryland to say, let's go and let's go win this decade. Well. If there's one thing even your worst detractors cannot argue is that you are not focused and you're not driven. You genuinely are. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Absolute pleasure having you. I look forward to seeing what you do. Absolutely. Genuinely. Governor like Westmore, everybody. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. 
Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central. And stream full episodes anytime on Paramount+. Plus. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now.